Storymakers. I'm Elizabeth Stark Powers. I'm Angie Powers. And we're here with Boris Fishman today. Very exciting. And welcome. Thank you. Exciting for me too. I'm happy to talk to you guys. Uh, so we're just going to, we'll, we'll get to more formal introductions, but um, we're just going to start with a, a little check-in about what uh, what you're working on this week. So, um, yeah, why don't you want to start, Boris? What, what are you working on this week? Well, this is uh, a kind of a nerve-wracking week because um, <clears throat> um, my first novel came out last summer and I've been touring pretty much nonstop on behalf of it. I finally got home in March after nine months of touring and I've spent the last six weeks putting my life back together. Uh, but now there are no dishes left to wash and no pants left to buy. And I have no choice but to sit down to the writing desk and start thinking about what I'm going to write next. And, um, I've never craved dirty dishes more in, in my life. We all know the dark pleasure of procrastinating. Yes. Um, and, and, and conversations like this are, are uh, they're just lovely because I feel like I'm doing something substantive, but I don't have to be writing. So thank you guys. <laughs> so glad we could help uh, keep you away from that project. Um, well, good. We're looking forward to hearing more about that as well. Um, Angie, how about you? What are you working on? Um, I am actually working on two things, trying to finish that synopsis for uh, submission stuff and revising a screenplay, Rock and Roll Ahola. So those are the two projects for this week. Great. Well, I am um, re, re, re-editing the beginning of this memoir project so that I can send it off and see what uh, my agent thinks about it. <laughs> uh, and and the overview, which is which is challenging. You have to make so many decisions to write the overview without having written the book. It's a strange strange order to do things in. I feel like you you. I feel like the time to write the overview, the easiest time to write the overview is when you've actually finished the book, because only then do you know what it's about. Exactly, right. exactly. But the whole thing with memoir is that if you can, you know, that you might be able to sell it ahead of time if you can write the overview first but it's it's really an act of fiction i guess the over I mean, as as yet to be written memoir <laughs> that, that question came up in a in a in a panel i was on what's um what, what's preferable to get a contract based on unwritten work or to have written all of it already because of course uh, different pressures and different kinds of support well, and you're in the perfect position, perhaps, to answer that because you, I believe, I believe you wrote your first novel not under contract, and you are now I, under contract. No, I'm. I, um, you know, I've already written the second, and it's coming out next year, and both were written uh, without uh, any guarantees. Okay. And I, I kind of like it that way. As long as there is enough money in the bank to actually like survive, I prefer it that way because that kind of pressure and expectation that you I'm a, I'm a pretty uh, diligent worker so I'm pretty sure I'd be able to come in under deadline but there's something icky about knowing that by October 15th you have to turn in a draft of your novel like it, it's really it really has to take its own course mm. well let's just uh, by by way of, of a bit of formal introduction say that that uh 
that working without deadline, you completed a, a wonderful no first novel, A Replacement Life, which I happen to have here looking slightly beat up, but for good reason. Um, <laughs> and um, and it was um, the front a front cover review of the New York Times Book Review. Um, it was uh, one of their hundred notable books of the year. It's out in paperback now. Um, so it's it's had an exciting trajectory, and I, I want to hear more about. Oh, I see. Yeah, nice, nice. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's the paperback. Um, really different cover. Yeah, it's the British cover. Ah, the hardback British is the paperback American. Correct. With the with the caveat that the Brits don't really have hardcovers; they just have large format and small format. And the large format, even though it's soft, is called hardcover. Oh. Interesting, because we just got Ellie Smith's How to Be Both, which is in hardcover here, and it's just the largest print. I, I thought it was the large print edition, but maybe it comes from that British thing. There you go. Yeah. I think they're blinder in, in, in England. Because they read. <laughs> because they read more, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then I just want to mention that you also do a lot of, of journalism, write essays, criticism. Um, you've appeared in the New Yorker, New York Times, um, magazine and book review, the New Republic, the Nation, the London Review of Books, Wall Street Journal, um, and other publications. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about that too, especially I love on your website that you have it beautifully laid out with the different articles. And then at the bottom, you have the, the ones that, that were, remain unpublished, but which you claim are, are the best. <laughs> yeah, because uh, um, I wanted to include them because just because an editor doesn't take something is hardly a, a kind of final judgment on the piece because so many considerations go into it. Um, do they, do, have they recently published something on the same subject? Do they have something coming up on the same subject? Can they not fit it as the wrong length? Blah, blah, blah. It's actually rarely because the piece is uh, poor, poorly written or poorly conceived or something. So um, obviously not everything that has gone unpublished is up there, but some of them I'm still really fond of. So why not? Now, do you do you not consider sending them to uh, sending them on to another place? I think many of these sort of their moment has passed. Um, I remember um, I was in Iraq in 2003 after shortly after the war, and I did a big piece about the Kurds, which, of course, have remained in the news for the last uh, 10, 12 years. Um, but uh, and it, but it was sort of its message was something that was particular to the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you know, as good as I still think it is, um, it, it, it would be strange to send it somewhere now. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about um, those pieces that, you know, the, 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 the journalism work that you do? Do you tend to, um, or did you begin by querying people? Do you now have relationships with editors? Are people now coming to you? And kind of what that whole trajectory looked like? Well, it's it's really, it's it's interesting to reflect on because I started out formally as a journalist. So it was my profession not to write fiction, but to try to sell pieces to a variety of publications because I was working as a freelancer. Um, and, you know, you know they, they, they always tell you that don't put all your, if you're a fiction writer, professionally, don't put all your eggs in one basket because it's a really merciless kind of um, line of work from which to make a living. Um, the same goes for journalism. There's just, if you, especially if you're a freelance, there's just a crazy desperation to you as you're pitching these pieces because your your livelihood depends on it and it's really like trying to thread a needle with a ship cable because the the, the likelihood of i mean editors um 
it's it's a much more heartless business than than publishing is. Believe it or not, at least I find it so. Um, you might get a response, you might not. Um, you might get a response and then not. Um, someone might take something and then not take it, <clears throat> and so on and so forth. And so part of the reason I went into fiction is because I refused to live that way. I decided that if I was going to suffer, I might as well suffer for something I really love, which was fiction. But the funny thing that happens when you've published a novel is all of a sudden they start seeking you out. Mm. And it's a completely different world because the demand is already there. You don't have to persuade anyone of anything. Um, and I don't enjoy reporting. Yeah. It's, it's just not something I like. Um, so I end up writing primarily personal essays. Um, and, and, but there's not a lot of, uh, there are not a lot of venues for personal essays these days, you know? And so, um, it tends to, my work tends to appear infrequently in journalistic outlets. And, but when it does, it's typically in, uh, in essay form. Mm. So you said you, you turned to fiction partly uh, for practical purposes. Um, how, how was that shift for you? I mean, from, and, and of course the book, A Replacement Life really grapples with these lines between fact and fiction, lies and, and truth and all of that. But so how was that, how was that a shift as a writer? Right. No, you haven't, you've never heard that before that someone turned to fiction for practical reasons, right? <laughs> it does speak to the desperation of journalism. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, two things. One of them is I found a much more congenial uh, working environment, by which I mean that um, even though we've we've been trained to think of uh, publishing um, as really focused on the uh, on the bottom line these days, um, at least in the literary fiction corner of it, which perhaps is smaller than it used to be. Um, I have found uh, people who love literature um, and who uh, uh, buy or turn down a work less because it's likely to make a certain kind of money or hit a certain kind of market and more because it's lit a fire inside them or it hasn't. Mm. And that's the kind of line of work I've always wanted to be a part of. And it actually takes the edge off rejections as well because um, what they're, they're all so subjective. What you've written might... <clears throat> What you've written might absolutely um, keel over someone in one house and leave someone else indifferent. And the fact is that the industry and the marketplace is so uh, pitiless that the editor has to be on fire about it in order to promote the hell out of it and support it and give it the support that it needs in order to survive. Like I'm, I'm. Um, we'll get later to what we're doing this week, but I'm reading the collective. I'm going to deal with that. Continue on. That's the dog's way of calling my bluff. Um, I um, I'm reading the collective stories of Flannery O'Connor, and Flannery O'Connor started out with Reinhardt, and they kept asking her to um, to make changes that just just felt wrong to her, and she kind of ultimately declined to make them, and they just said this doesn't work for us, and then she went over to FSG and became the author we know today. Mm. Um, it's you know one one person's failures another, and and that is really true of publishing. So I find it a lot more, um, it, it seems to be treated like an art rather than when I, when I was practicing journalism, it often felt like I expected it to be, um, kind of, a, an artistic experience, but it felt like we were like dealing, we're filing bolts and those bolts just happened to be words. Um, it felt more utilitarian. Um, so, and also I find that in, in, in fiction, um, uh, you know, 
I want to sit down and work on my third book, start my third book this week, but no one at HarperCollins expects me to. The <laughs> message I've always gotten from them is take the time that you need to do what you need to do. And we will accommodate, accommodate that as best as we can. Um, and I've just felt a lot of really sophisticated um, interaction on the subject of what writers have to do, artists have to do, like a real, a real deep understanding and respect for what I'm trying to do. And that couldn't be more gratifying. So um, even if this ship is sinking, as, as, as sort of various people say, I'm, I'm ready to go down with it because, uh, you know, for these reasons. <laughs> Ah, wonderful. Well, let's um, let's go back then to the to the beginning of, of your writing process as a fiction writer. Then, so how do you, you know, how do you get your ideas? How do you how do you proceed from uh, I'm going to write fiction to uh, here's a book? Um, yeah. So everything has to begin with a kind of uh, light bulb moment uh, where you hit upon um, an idea that seems rich and complex and like it could take you through 300 pages. And just to get concrete, uh, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. Um, as such, she was eligible to receive restitution from the German government. Um, when her application, when her invitation to apply came, I was asked to fill it out by my family because I had the best English in the family because we're all from the Soviet Union. Um, looking over her application, I realized that it didn't ask for any proof because um, <clears throat> for the simple reason that People in the ghettos, in the concentration camps, didn't get confirmation vouchers, and the Germans destroyed a lot of documents, so on and so forth. And I just realized that if somebody wanted to um, start forging these stories, um, they would probably get away with it. Because what was officially a matter of history now became a matter of storytelling. If you could tell a good story, if you knew how to tell a persuasive story, you were in. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking about, would this ever be, this would never be legally justified, but would it ever be morally justified? And I started to think about cases when it might be. And then I got to thinking about, are the law and justice always the same thing? And, and obviously they're not. So then how much space has to open out between them before we feel authorized to take matters into our own hands? So you see, like, you could talk about this for 300 pages. <laughs> obviously, you need to bury all of this in a, a, a propulsive story that, that touches these ideas very lightly. Um, but I just knew that, um, this would carry a story for 300 pages. Um, so it all begins with, with, but the idea has to be uh, rich enough. Like to give you an example, uh, a counter example, um, I had another idea, uh, sort of related to the first one. Uh, this is actually what I was writing before we started to speak where let's say a survivor dies. Um, but then in, uh, in Dead Souls style, if you know that novel by Gogol, her family refuses to inform the agency that pays out restitution that this person has passed away. Mm -hmm. And this person in secret keeps collecting these payouts. But then, but then the agency gets wind that they've passed away and the family contests it. And then this older woman has a twin that has to play her, you know, and just, just this on and on and on, this kind of increasingly absurdist charade to persuade the Germans that this person is alive, blah, blah. It was very exciting. Then I sat down and after about two pages, I was like, this is stupid. Like mm -hmm. this is, the, this is, this is the kind of thing that won't take me through um, lots of pages. And I think I'm going to let it go. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you don't find that out until you've sat down to write. But with the first book, like ideas kept coming as I kept working on it uh, because you don't have 300 pages worth of ideas from the get go. 
And when you say ideas, do, do you mean, I mean, do you mean ideas or do you mean uh, characters, scenes, images, or, or both? Um, so my, my first novel, I, I, I mapped out a lot of it in advance because I was anxious about writing a novel. And there's probably nothing wrong with that with your first novel. Um, though by the time I was done with the first draft, it felt kind of dead because I had sort of strictly adhered to what I had planned out. And you really need to give your story room to breathe and to suggest a different direction to go. Uh, I know that sounds abstract, but actually when you're sitting there and writing, this character that you intended to be solemn all of a sudden surprises you by saying something uh, buffoonish and it kind of works. It kind of actually resonates with who this character has been so far and you just start off in an entirely different direction. That's, that's the way in which, concretely speaking, uh, a narrative might speak to you. If you never allow yourself to listen to those signals because you've mapped things out in advance and that's what you need to do, um, I, I, I guarantee you that when you're done, it will sound constrained and wooden and unfaithful to itself. With the second novel, um, there's this great line by E.L. Doctorow, uh, writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You know that one? Yeah, yeah. You can see only as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. I never knew what was going to happen beyond um, a first, uh, uh, a first cha- the first chapter. The second novel is about a family in New Jersey that adopts a boy from Montana who turns out to be wild. And so what does that mean? You know, he runs away to like chew grass and eat dirt. Mm-hmm. And so I knew the first chapter would be the kids vanished. And the parents, the kids vanished. The kids run away and the parents have to figure out where he is. Uh, that's a good first chapter because it, intru- it, uh, it introduces you to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's natural drama because the kid's missing and the parents have to find him. Mm-hmm. And the reader is wondering, uh, why did he run away? Is he going to get found? So on and so forth. And while I've got the reader's attention, I have uh, a little bit of time to feed them some information about who these people are, what their relationship is like, the fact that the kid has adopted, the fact that he's maybe run away before, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so, um, and by the time I've done the first chapter, um, I've uh, brought enough detail into it that it's sort of given me uh, ideas for what to do with number two. Mm-hmm. And number two, then, uh, I tell the story of how the mother and the father met. In chapter three, I go back to the missing kid and, okay, it's time for him to show up. Where was he? I have to answer that question. Chapter four is, how did they come to adopt the kid? You know, and like, and on and on and on. If I may recommend a very slim but useful um, craft guide, um, have you heard of um, the book Ron Carlson writes a short story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that really useful because he takes you through the writing of a short story um, where his starting point is just a single sentence and nothing more. He has no ideas on where it should go and just sort of focuses on the first sentence until it gives him ideas where to go with sentence number two. That tells him where to go with sentence number three, and he takes you through the whole story that way. And the novel works kind of similarly. And I just want to say that's Ron, Ron Carlson writes a short story, and it's by Ron Carlson, and we will put that in the show notes, um, that, that, that reference. Uh, so now let me ask you this. So you, you said, you know, the chapter one introduces a problem. Uh, there's natural drama in it. You, you have you have an idea of what your reader is wondering. And then that gives you time to establish the character and to build detail out of which the next chapter is going to grow. But then you go back to the parents, how the parents meet. Do you have the same sense of a problem in that chapter of natural drama of a question that draws the reader through that chapter? So what I've done in the first chapter 
while officially we're all looking for the kid, I've introduced you to the mother and father, and I've made it clear that these people do not get along. Mm-hmm. Um, so then hopefully I've made you curious about how these two people could have come together 20 years before, considering they kind of hate each other now. Yeah. Um, and so um, hopefully that's keeping your attention because, um, you know, they're very, they're, they're very many, there are very many different ways to write a novel. Um, this one happens to be present, past, present, past, present, past, and then all present, you know, mm-hmm. where those uh, intervening chapters from the past give you context to enrich your understanding of the present. But of course, the novel doesn't have to be written that way. It could be written entirely in the present, so on and so forth. Yeah. But in this case, um, that's what I hoped would take readers through uh, the second chapter. I hope I've made you interested in who the mother and the father are. Yeah, I have to say it's sort of striking to me how similar the way that you're describing writing uh, fiction sounds a lot like copywriting in a certain way. The headline brings you down to the first sentence and the first sentence gets you to read the second sentence. And, you know, the, the job of each thing is to push you forward. Um, and, I, and I've not actually heard people articulate it so clearly around fiction, but I think it's true as well. Like, uh, I think it's I mean, we get into this sort of esoteric stuff about art and that sort of thing. But the, it really is, you know, the intention of the first sentence is to get you to read the second. Totally. And I mean, I have a friend who wrote um, an absolutely brilliant novel. But after uh, but after um, starting with the present um, and sort of introducing the main characters, he then needs to go back to provide some context. But the problem is he goes into the past on page 15, he goes into the past for like 75 pages. <laughs> and, and I mean, at a certain point, there was like, hey, hey, when are we going to get back to? So chapter two can't be any longer, in my case, than chapter one. I mean, because re- you've, bought, you've bought enough attention from the reader, but not so much. And so you need to be mindful of that. It's like when I read, a, you know, I'm reading a biography of Graham Greene, right? And honestly, Graham Greene started doing the things that are interesting to me at about 35 years old. But you know what? There's about 700 pages to get through before he turns 35. You know, <laughs> he was born in a room that had wallpaper that looked like this. And, you know, and you're just like, I think I'm just going to flip forward to page 700 because, um, <laughs> you know, sure, we can, we can sort of perhaps because he saw you know, a lame horse when he was seven, it, it resulted in the power and the glory, but like, I'm just not ready to draw that link. And I just want to move forward to, so you really have to, then again, of course, there are all these people who break the rules, but if you're starting out, it, it, I think it behooves you to know how some of these things tend to work before you decide to ignore them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it was interesting what you're saying about the, the outlining because, um, I think outlining or planning really works for me simply because I will never adhere to, to a plan. I think that's probably true for you too, Angie, right? <laughs> you know, so therefore having a very detailed plan is, is incredibly helpful um, as we sort of, as you wave goodbye to it. <laughs> distance. Yeah. And I also think like, you know, again, I, one of the things that I feel like it can do when it works well is again, not locking into it, but using it as a way to sort of fertilize your imagination possibilities, using it to sort of push yourself um, to come up with ideas and and then, you know, wherever you end up, you end up. You know, I had a screenwriting professor who actually said, if you do a good job, because screenwriting, lots of outlining, like it's a definitely, it's an outlining approach. Um, but he said, you know, if you outline well, you will leave your outline 
but somehow there's a relationship in the process. You will kind of come back at some point. You shouldn't be so far off that there's not a relationship to what you were doing before. But I thought it was, he also was saying, go ahead and take those wanders. Can I ask you a question? When you, when you're writing um, or outlining and you hit upon uh, a problem, meaning like you just, you don't know what a character, what does character X do in situation in this situation? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you work that out? How do you arrive at an answer? Do you, journal about it? Do you, uh, do you write your way through it day in and day out? Do you, what do you do? Uh, to whom are you addressing that question? <laughs> I, I, either of you, whoever wants to answer it. Yes. Um, so I, well, if I run into a problem where I don't know, I will often walk away from the work and like take a walk or do something else. Um, and it's sort of funny because uh, if I think about it too much, that's when I tend to get to those really like cliche places. Um, whereas if I back off, there'll be some relationship that I hadn't thought of before, or that strikes me as really interesting. And then I'll come back to it and play with that. But, um, I try not to just force my way through it because that often doesn't work for me. It's like, Oh, look at this thing I've seen somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. That makes sense. Yeah. I always go and like read a bunch of things, listen, you know, try to figure out how other people did it. Um, listen to, you know, interviews with people. Try, I just, I always sort of go after some kind of mentorship, you know, and, um, and, and then usually after I've done a bunch of that, um, you know, my own idea will come together. But how about you? Um, I think it's a blend of the two because um, like, my second novel, uh, the one about the, the, the wild adopted child, ultimately it's less about him than his mother, who is uh, an unhappy woman. And I thought, okay, well, let me read Anna Karenina um, to learn about, to see how unhappy women have been handled in literature. The problem is that as uh, magnificent as Tolstoy is, I, he's not my favorite. And um, so it was, it was a chore taking, taking myself through, through the work. Um, so I realized it's not, it's not, um, uh, affinity through subject matter that teaches me something, but affinity through style. You know, I love Graham Greene's style, and even to read him on another subject is instructive to me on how to handle mine because of the way he writes. Um, but I, I, but then I do what Angie does. I, um, so uh, you know, I wash dishes. I, I, I need a, I need a repetitive physical activity that doesn't require much thinking. That sort of um, sets my mind free, occupies my body, sets my mind free. Um, and washing dishes is perfect. For some reason, the shower is also incredibly <laughs> fertile in that, in, in that regard. Or I also go outside, and because you're so focused on what would character X do in situation Y, everything you see and everyone you see somehow is seen through that prism, and eventually just the answer arrives. You're just primed to, to realize what that character would do because you're primed to see everything going on around you as a variation on that kind of situation. So invariably it comes and it's often just like a eureka moment where you're like, yes, of course, of mm. course, he, he would lie. He would lie. He wouldn't tell the <laughs> truth. He would lie, you know? Right. Did that, you, that's the answer that comes most often. Of course, a lie, yeah. a lie. A, a lie is always more interesting than, than the truth. Correct. <laughs> did, did you read the, did you read Tolstoy in Russian? No, actually. I mean, I can read in Russian. Uh, it takes a lot longer, but I can. But I've usually read the, the Russians in, in English. Mm-hmm. And while I have nothing but respect for the ones whom Americans love the most, which is Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, 
and Chekhov, they're not my favorites in, in Russian. It's, it's more like Turgenev, if people know Fathers and Sons, mm-hmm. Bulgakov, if people know Master and Margarita, mm-hmm. um, some of those, yeah. Um, so, so speaking of telling a lie, let's talk about your author's note, if, if we might. The yeah. line between fact and fiction, invention and theft is as loose as the line between truth and justice. And you then have, you have pages of, of lines that have, uh, that are from other people that you're crediting at, with, with page number, uh, but that have made your way, their way into your book. How do they, how do they make their way into your book? I mean, do you use them deliberately as jumping off points for your writing or do they just sort of bubble up as you go? So I'm, I'm working on the novel. Well, first of all, the reason I wanted to do this is two reasons. Number one is the novel is about um, forgeries of Holocaust restitution claims. It's about fraud and theft. And so I wanted to do a little theft of my own in the novel, steal lines from authors I've loved and put them into the book. The second reason is that I really want to confront this myth that any artwork at this time, you know, we live in a kind of gotcha culture where, and I think it's a gotcha culture because I think the people who have success in our culture are more remote that they're apparently more accessible than ever because they have Instagram accounts or whatever, but they're actually more remote than ever in, in, in the scale of their success. And we love building them up and then we love tearing them down for reasons that probably don't need explanation. Um, <clears throat> and so part of the building up is this myth that um, artworks are born from the genius mind of the artist whole cloth. Um, and then when something is discovered to have been taken from elsewhere, sometimes uh, uh, not innocuously, but sometimes perfectly innocuously, there's a, there, there's a kind of uh, ravenous satisfaction in tearing that person down as as a fraud but the fact is that no artwork has ever been created out of nothing we are assimilating what those before us have done all the time right i just i simply wanted to formalize that fact and make it explicit by bringing it to the surface and then formally acknowledging it Mm -hmm. i mean there is a problem if you are knowledgeably knowingly stealing and concealing that fact but mm-hmm. even but even then, it's a complex situation because I don't have to tell you when you're staring at a blank screen, desperate to fill it with anything, you might come across a locution and or an idea in another book that gets you started. And every every day, you have the most sincere intentions to flag that and flag it and and note it in the, and then just because there are 55 million things in your head, and because you're staring at the computer screen every day, over time, that comes to feel like you're something you wrote yourself, or you simply don't remember. Now it's a false, it's, it's an, it's an um, unjustifiable action, but is it uh, consciously malicious? I would argue not. And there's just not a lot of room made for that kind of honest error. Um, everything is it, once exposed is, 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 is judged to have been premeditated. And so I just wanted to just this, this puritanical notion. I just wanted to confront it uh, in terms of where I found those lines. I was in the process of writing my novel. But of course, I'm reading on the side. I'm, you know, I'm reading. Um, I read before writing every day. Reading remains a daily duty as I'm writing the novel. And I'll come across a line in a poem by Mary Oliver that actually speaks to something in my novel, mm-hmm. or a reference in a novel by Chang Ray Lee 
that actually uh, works in a scene. And so I pluck it and I move it in. I pluck it and I move it because that was my conscious intention to steal a bunch of lines. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, a lot of people have been amused by the author's note. A lot of people have been amused by the end notes because they don't usually appear in a novel unless you're in a David Foster Wallace project. So I don't know, I kind of, I kind of enjoyed it. I really just, it, it bugs me so much, um, this, this culture of, of uh, inflating and then tearing down um, our public people. Hmm. I do think that this the issue of truth and I mean this this whole question that that causes these sort of periodic scandals um, is really at the, I mean it's really at the forefront of, of I mean I just I keep seeing it everywhere it's it's sort of um, there's a, a recent novel out about a, a me, an invented memoir I don't know if you I don't remember now but um, uh, is the novel it's it's a novel about an invented memoir. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I love the idea. Um, and I heard an interview, and I'll have to track but, it down. It isn't that the novel is an invented memoir. It's a novel about an invented memoir. Yes, the, the part of the novel apparently is the invented memoir. I see. Um, but uh, and part of it is the, the story about the, the I guess about the boy. Why don't I? Okay, it's about it's about the grandson <laughs> finding uh, his his great or you know just finding out that his grandfather's memoir is partly fictionalized oh yeah i thought i heard something similar i don't remember yeah we'll put it in the show notes um, we do have some questions from our guests so if we have time for that sure uh, go, go ahead I'm okay ready. um so there was a little bit of a technical difficulty so some of these refer to earlier in our conversation one is um it was actually funny do you like doing essays at all? I think you actually answered that. You like the personal essays more than the journalism. Yes, because they're the they're the nonfiction that is closest to fiction in terms of style. Right. And so who who do you like to read? Like if you were just by yourself and you've got a week to read not, anything you want, nothing is due. What are you, what are, what are you reading? Um, well, it's all it's there's um, there are certain books, of course, that one goes back to. Um, but there are also so many books that um, remain to be read. I read very little contemporary fiction because there's just so much stuff from the past to mm -hmm. catch up on. Like, you know, I've never read Dr. Zhivago by Pasternak. I have never read Invisible Man by Ellison. Um, I read a little Flannery O'Connor when I was in my MFA program, but I feel like I, was, I wasn't qualified to learn as much from it as I'm learning now. Mm. Um, some authors like Graham Greene and William Steyer, and I've now read so much by and reread so much by that I kind of want to go behind the curtain and read some biographical material about, because, you know, some biographies are more about the author's lives and some are more about the author's craft and how they resolve certain, um, craft issues. And so I'm, um, I have those two very fat books on, on my nightstand. Yeah. Um, one thing, one thing that always rewards going back to is the Paris review interviews. Mm. Um, these are the interviews that the fiction writers have done with the, with the magazine that have been collected into four volumes. Um, and so it's always like a mix of there, there is some nonfiction in there as well. Um, uh, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm, I'm waiting to read touched by fire, which is the Kay Jamison book about all the artists throughout history who've had, manic depressive illness. Yeah. Um, and, but honestly, like the more fiction I read, the less interested in nonfiction I become mm -hmm. because 
Um, I care deeply about style and too little nonfiction is written in a genuinely creative style. Absolutely. Uh, um, which is a shame because there's a lot of good information in nonfiction out there, but it's very hard for me to get through fiction that's carelessly, nonfiction that's carelessly written. I just, I, I wanted to follow up on one thing you mentioned about being better qualified to read certain things now. And I am astonished at, um, at, not so much how much better a reader I am now, but what that must have meant about how poor a reader I was at a time when I was, you know, <laughs> I say enrolled in graduate school at a prestigious institution, like what the hell was I doing? Um, but so I'm, I'm comforted in the notion that you find you're, you're becoming increasingly qualified. <laughs> and also the other issue is that you're a different person uh, X years later, the same way that they have to translate the classics from foreign languages once every generation, because we as, we as a, a country and as a people have changed and are ready to see different things in Anna Karenina or whatever, depending on the mood of the times. I'm a different person now than I was even, uh, you know, I got, I started my MFA eight years ago. So I'm a different person than, than I was then. Um, mm -hmm. I was uh, unequipped to appreciate why Alice Monroe is so fantastic then. And I'm still a little unequipped to appreciate why she's so fantastic, but I'm more equipped to appreciate it now. I mean, there, there is a kind of mastery there, uh, even if it's not the subject that I would flock to first, that I just wasn't capable of appreciating back then. And also having written more in the interim, um, I'm reading less as, a, as a, an English major, so to speak, and more as a writer, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm reading to see how she did it rather than what she means. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Uh, in the, are there other questions, Ian? Um, not really. Okay. A big thank you. Yes, there's a big thank you. That, right. I mean, there was a question, but I don't, it wasn't really so much directed. It was about memoir and recreating dialogue from 20 years ago. Oh, that's, a really, that's a really important question. That's a really, really important question because um, I recently watched Capote uh, uh, about the writing of In Cold Blood. And... Um, Prior to seeing that film, um, I had read In Cold Blood. And after seeing the film, I went back to In Cold Blood to reread some of it. And I remember, and, and literally on page like seven, there's a note in the margins. How in the world is he reconstructing this dialogue? Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is that in the movie, Truman Capote, the character says, I have 94% recall of all conversations. So if that's actually true, what a blessing that is. And that kind of answers the question quickly. Um, on the other, you know, for people who are not so genetically blessed, um, they're, or they're creative two... in their explanations. <laughs> right. There you go. There, there, there's one, there's one of two things, which is, um, <clears throat> you just take, um, you take incredible notes while whatever you're writing about is going on. You know, Philip Roth, there's, there's a memoir called Patrimony about his father's death, mm. which is a book that I prefer to all of his fiction for a variety of reasons. And you're reading this reconstructed dialogue and you're like, my Lord, clearly he wasn't taking notes at the time because he's just too busy dealing with a dying father um, and cleaning, cleaning things up off the floor. And then at the end of it, Roth ambivalently confesses to having taken scrupulous notes all along. Mm. Uh, because there, there's no way to have written such an incredibly affecting book. And it's incredibly affecting partly because the dialogue reads like a novel's dialogue. It is that detailed. Um, and so you really, it's a little ghoulish to take that distance and detachment from the moment 
and mm -hmm. take notes on it while it's going on. And for example, here's, a, here's an example of a way in which I wasn't a professional writer. I had um, a great, great cross-country trip um, um, to, to, to find a mentor that would have made a perfect memoir uh, that took place seven years ago. But I didn't know well enough to take notes while I was doing it because I wasn't necessarily thinking of it as a potential book because I, I wasn't thinking in that way. And now it remains a fantastic idea that I'll never carry out because I don't have any notes. I would have to invent the dialogue, which is no problem because the third thing you can do is, in, you know, a lot of memoirs have this disclaimer. Uh, the dialogue is recreated to the best of my recollection. It is not true in letter, but it is true in spirit. You see that disclaimer a lot. There's nothing wrong with that as long as that disclaimer appears there. Um, but it's a little bit more problematic when it's a public figure whose dialogue you're inventing, which would be the case with me, as opposed to your aunt, you know? So all those things have to go into it. Um, let's see. Well, we'll do the last question here, and then we'll go into our, uh, our wrap-up. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so one question was, how do you stay uh, engaged with your novel through a long process of revision? What you said, Angie, is also what works for me. Um, first of all, one of the most useful qualities is patience. I, I don't have much, and that works, and that's to my detriment. Um, one of the most useful things ever said to me by a mentor-like figure was said to me by um, a novelist named Salvatore Sabona, who was the uh, writing administrator at a residency called the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts. He said, hold on to it for as long as you can, because um, it'll get better with each draft, and you're not going to get that many chances to um, try to get people's attention with it. So it should be uh, better than it can and you should have exhausted everything you can do with it and everything that your close readers have been able to recommend. So how do you maintain freshness through five drafts more than you plan to write? You take two, you take two months off between drafts. You have to, you have to. Um, I know that prolongs the process. I know it delays the referendum on your skills that you're desperate for, but you just have to take those two months so you come back to it with fresh eyes. Um, a good test is when you're reading it and for a little while it's, it reads like someone else's prose, then you know your eyes are fresh for it. Um, another thing that I did once that was extremely uh, useful is I retyped the whole damn manuscript. Wow. Um, it really freshens your eyes for it because instead of reading, which is passive, you're actually retyping it, um, which just sort of suggests how conditional, how provisional it is. Uh, and how much of it can actually be changed. When you're rereading something you've read five times, there's a kind of feeling of written in stone about it. Yeah. And when you actually retype it, it stops being stone and starts being clay, you know? Mm -hmm. um, um, another, another invigorating thing is to hand the manuscript to a reader you trust. They're going to come back and say five things that don't make any sense or have no relevance, five, and five things that are actually really exciting because they show you new directions for the thing to go. And you realize that, you know, Johnson is actually this kind of character rather than this kind of character. And those new directions are exciting and keep you from feeling stale. So, And that, that one has a built-in break from it because you shouldn't be working on it while your reader's looking at it. Right. And you may and be tempted. You may be tempted yeah. because how do you get, how do you feel productive about your day if you're not working on your manuscript? 
and you know, um, you, there are all kinds of things you can do in the interim. Um, but I, for example, it used to be that I defined productivity too narrowly as words on the page. And in one sense, it's good because it, it drives you and keeps you working. But but sometimes, like a three-hour walk in a quiet place uh, with a no, with a notebook in your back pocket is is more productive than two thousand uh, kind of aimless words on a page. You know. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, let me ask you the corollary question to the how do you stick with a long revision question, which is how do you let go of something when you're always going to be able to make it better in the next draft because you're always becoming a better writer. I'm, I'm, um, I seem to be built somewhat differently from most people. You know, we often read about authors who just can't let go of their manuscript. I can't wait to let go of it, you know, cause I'm just very eager to be done. So, um, someone once asked me, how do you know a story's over? And I thought about it and it occurred to me that at least in my case, or at least in the case of the first novel, the story is over when the hero, when the protagonist has, uh, lost something and learned something. Mm. And, and so that was it for me, but the novel went through 12 drafts, right? Why 12 and how is 12 different from one? So with each draft, so you pick two months pass or a month passes, whatever. I, I, I look at draft two and you know what? There are a handful of things that two months later continue to read well. I don't touch them and focus on the 90% of other stuff, which doesn't work. By draft three, that 90 is down to 80, down to 70, down to 60. With each draft, more and more things survive the test of time and continue to read well um, after months of of, um, uh, distance. And by draft 12, basically, there were relatively few things peeking out and being obviously bad. And I just knew that I was done. And of course, by that point I had an agent and it helped that my agent agreed because I signed with him after nine drafts. And even though I wanted to be done then, he alerted me to the fact that I wasn't. (laughs) And I had three drafts to go. So those kinds of authority figures are very useful as well. Well, we could obviously talk to you for hours and hours, and I hope we'll come back on again when your next book comes out. Um, the last thing we do is is what we call steal this um, from the old adage of you know uh, professional poets uh, or amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. It's that was I think Elliot. Different people said it in different ways. Um, so uh, something you stole, you've stolen recently, to, uh, made it your own, which of course is is clearly your your forte. <laughs> um, Boris, would you like to begin? Um, so this week, um, I'm sort of reading simultaneously two books, the short stories of Flannery O'Connor and this one other book that I have to review. So I won't mention what book or where. And, and, um, um, the latter book is, is, uh, clearly written by someone who has a facility with language, but it is a little bit like, um, um, you know, those desserts that have too much sugar, um, Every, every single word in a sentence costs $64, you know, uh, in, 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 in this book. And one of them is delicious, but six of them in the same sentence are just like, you know, a sugar, a sugar coma. Whereas you read Flannery O'Connor, and actually her sentences are kind of short and kind of simple. It's just that the language within them is so distinctive. The words themselves are simple, but what she, her, her syntax, her phrasing, the way she expresses things is so rivetingly original. And then that's what's, that's what keeps your attention. Um, but the senses themselves are, 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 um, 
they're like, you know, they're the fixed speed bike version of, uh, of, uh, um, and so I, I, I already in what I was, I told you a little bit about this failed experiment of a short story that I was working on right before we spoke, I was writing, I was, I was consciously emulating Flannery O'Connor's style. Uh, I was stealing, I was stealing her way of doing things. And even though the segment didn't, the, the story didn't work out, the style was, I was really enjoying writing in that kind of, in a blend of myself and her, that isn't arrogant to say. Um, and I don't know if it'll survive till tomorrow, but I know that that practice gave me something. Yeah. Wonderful. Great. Angie, how about you? What do you see? Um, well, basically I've been listening to a book as I take the dog for a walk and the book I, I've been listening to is called a mind for numbers and it's about learning math and, um, sort of the, everything's about the, you know, the neuro, whatever about if, if neuro is in the front of it, it's, you know, science now. <laughs> yes. And, um, so I've been learning about how we learn math. And one of the things that, uh, she talks a lot about is, um, the focus and the focused brain and the diffuse brain. And, um, some of that I do already, um, and we, as we were talking about, like, if you run into a problem, stepping away from the problem, that's a sort of a natural moving into the diffuse. But I've not intentionally kind of constructed the focus part in the same way. Like, uh, her, her idea is, like, you really get clear on the problem, and then you leave it alone. And um, But you got to feed yourself on the problem in a good way so that your brain has a lot of information and then it can make those leaps when you step away from it. So what I'm stealing right now actually is the focus part and the intentional walking away, making it a little bit more intentional rather than, okay, this, this is crap and I need to walk away. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I, um, so I get up in the morning, I read poetry, I write, and then I meditate and, um, or I try to meditate as people say, but in fact, it turns out that the trying is, is the whole thing, right? It's only, no one, no one's really doing much, but trying. Um, anyway, so somebody lent me this book called Zen Keys and, um, and I love this. Okay. This is just a short thing. So it's, it's this, um, it's something that Thich Nhat Hanh translated, um, for the first time ever from, from, uh, from Chan Pai Tong, who was the first king of the Trang dynasty in 1225 to 1400 in Vietnam. So I'm going to guess by the cover of that book that the first time ever was a while ago. <laughs> well, but, but compared to 1225, it was pretty recently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you are right. Um, anyway, say 1974. Um, anyway, so, okay, so I'm just going to read the beginning of number two. It's the case, it says case, the world honored one had just been born. With one hand pointing to the sky, the other to the earth, he said, in heaven and earth, I alone am the world honored one. Then it says commentary. And this is the sole sentence of commentary. But one white cloud passes by the grotto and a thousand birds stray far from their nest. I love that as commentary. You know, I I think somebody once asked, I think it was HD to explain one of her poems and she just read it again. So I I think um, that's kind of the greatest commentary I've heard on something. So I'm going to. Who's who's HD? The the poet Hilda Doolittle, Doolittle, but HD is how she was known. Oh, interesting. I want to look that up. Yeah. And so I believe it was, I I may be, you know, uh, mashing. Falls into those. Uh, poets from the past that they're we're all trying to catch up on so she's <laughs> yeah 
But one, one of the other one of the other things I've been working on this week, as it happens, is an essay about how much authors owe readers in this new climate where readers have authors have more interaction than ever with readers, and um, and also this marketplace where readers can help authors more than ever before, um, and you know, inevitably that becomes about how much of yourself do you reveal? Because what readers usually are after is autobiographical information, information about the writer. And so HD responding to a question of what, what did that mean by rereading the poem is actually, uh, I might steal that from you guys and put it into my essay. <laughs> Excellent. And I know you just, we're back from nine months of tour, which we didn't get to hear about, but it, I, I'm sure that that uh, question of how much the author gives the reader and the reader gives the author is, is fresh on your mind. But do you think tours are still a vital part of promoting books, a, a successful vital part? Yeah, I think I think uh, the common feeling among authors is they resent having to put themselves out in that way. Um, I I think I'm a little different in that I don't. I'm not an introvert. I enjoy performing. I enjoy connecting to my audience. I, I, I should be fairer to other authors. I think they enjoy connecting to their audience. They just resent being pressed for biographical information. Hmm. Everyone I met was incredibly cordial and respectful and took their cue for me from me about how much I was willing to reveal. And no one ever pressed beyond sort of uh, 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 <clears throat> an acceptable line. Now, in terms of, you know, publishers don't tour authors that much anymore because the idea is that social media can, can do a lot of that. But the fact is there's nothing like in-person connection and I, and I know for a fact that some of the touring worked because people come up to you and say, I loved your talk um, and I'm going to make my book club read this. Yeah. So in, in, in a business that actually has not quantified um, a lot of information about why books sell and where and how, here is proof that 12 new copies will be sold, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and, and that happens dozens of times in dozens of different places. So I do think it matters. Um, and I, I can only guess, but I think it mattered for me. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I, I know it's a delight to get to see you face to face. So we'll look forward to the next tour. And thank you so, so much for coming on. It was just such a pleasure. And it was a pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me and have me again. There's much more to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> look forward to it. Thank Excellent. you, guys. Take Bye. Care. Thank you. Bye.